This week on a lively experiment, children needing early intervention services forced to wait months for the state of Rhode Island to respond. And the state is way behind its goal of having 25% of the fleet all electric or plug-in hybrid vehicles. What it's doing to try and catch up. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Boston Globe columnist Dan McGowan, attorney and former chairman of the Rhode Island Democratic Party, Bill Lynch, plus Boston Globe reporter and Rhode Island PBS weekly contributor, Steph Machado. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. We usually don't do theme shows on Lively, but this week's topics have a common thread. Government falling down on the job and leaving the people it is supposed to help underserved and frustrated. We start with a story by Steph Machado that she did for Rhode Island PBS Weekly on the state's failure to provide timely early intervention services for hundreds of children. Steph will tell us more about it in a moment. But first, John Kelly, president of Meeting Street School, talks about the importance of getting to children early. At the end of the day, the issue comes down to there's not enough providers. And I don't mean agencies. I mean, people working for us, like we, we're short-staffed. Everybody's short-staffed, and unfortunately, people don't want to hear it, but that comes down to money. And early childhood, and particularly early intervention, is not valued the way it should be valued. If you look at the biggest investment you're putting into kids and to the economy and to economic development, a there was a research study a long time ago that said a dollar put in was $12 savings down the road. And, you know, and your tax revenues went up because people were making more money. Your prison costs went down because people weren't going to, and as many people were going to prison. Your child welfare costs were going down. Your special ed costs in your public schools were going down. You're tying a child getting early intervention when they are an infant um, or toddler to fewer people going to prison. Yep. When you look at it, for over 40% of the kids who come through early intervention don't need any supplemental services, meaning they don't qualify for them, after the age of three. That's an incredible savings to the public school district. And it's also getting kids ready to enter school where they should be. You know, without that intervention, what would that look like? And if you want to watch the entire piece that Steph produced, you can go to our website, ripbs.org slash weekly. So Steph, I'm always curious from the reporter's perspective, was this pretty well known and it bubbled up to you? How did you hear about this issue? Well, it was actually a big problem during the pandemic and got a lot of news coverage in 2021. Um, it was There was no wait list for early intervention prior to 2021. All the children, I'm told, were getting in within this, you know, frame, the time frame required by law. And... There was a, a big crisis. It did get a lot of news coverage at the time, and state lawmakers did pass um, some increased Medicaid rates in 2022. And then we hadn't really heard about it since, and I wanted to know um, whether the problem was solved. And I was hearing from parents um, who were not getting into early intervention. In fact, 
Some of them were trying to get into special ed preschool and they had never their child had never even had early intervention, which ends at age three because they never got off the wait list. So that prompted me to um, bring up the issue again and look into whether the problem was solved. And um, unfortunately, there's still an incredibly long wait list, um, nearly 900 children as of earlier this month waiting for these services. And you know, as a young parent, <laughs> the, the clock ticks and then all of a sudden the kid's three years right. old and he ages he up. He's a young child. Doesn't mean he's a young parent. Duly <laughs> <laughs> noted. We will make that. Will, you feel older every day. I will say every day. I look at my son and I say, "Why can't you read yet?" And so I, I am worried about it to some degree. You got him on the fast track there in the McGowan household. And, and they always, you you just hit it on the head though. You know, these things do fly very fast, and you you know you need those services before you were three years old, right? We always talk about. Uh, when you get into to grade school, you know, you got to be able to read by the third grade. You got to be able to do math by the fifth grade. I mean, as uh, the, you know, the guy from Meeting Streets says, and as, as everybody points out, if you aren't catching kids, these most vulnerable <laughs> kids at the very earliest age, guess what? We're going to have the same problems that we have with all of our kids in, in you know, particularly our urban school systems all the way through the 12th grade. Yeah, I mean, I do, it's the old story of, of sunshine's the best disinfectant, so kudos to Steph for doing the story because it gets it out there more generally to the public as opposed to parents who have the issue, you know, within their household. And I think that's important because it's all a matter of priorities. And one of the things that, that uh, we saw in, in your entire piece uh, was that as a consequence of some of this uh, involvement with these people that the state through Speaker Sakachi and uh, with the, the Senate help made additional funds available, uh, increase some of the Medicaid reimbursements. Um, so it's a step in the right direction. Even the Meeting Street said that. It's not, they'd like to have more, obviously, mm -hmm. um, but at least, at least it lets people know that this is an issue that has to be dealt with. We've made some progress. There's more room to go. You know, it wasn't too many years ago that there was a debate and the Democratic Party, generally speaking, was pushing for all day kindergarten. Um, that got resistance. So sometimes it's, it's a, a process, you know, to get that progress, which is unfortunate when you're dealing with kids who grow up fast, as the end will find out. Yeah, one of the advocates um, that I interviewed said, you know, it's, it's like starting, starting a basketball game and you're already 20 points behind. If you go to kindergarten and you haven't gotten any help for whatever developmental delay or disability you may have, it gets harder and harder to catch up to your peers later on in your schooling. So you'll see in the full piece, um, if you watch it on uh, on our website, is that you talk to a young mother and her her son, and then there's issues for her because she's trying to juggle work and getting it. So what's the you know, and that tugs on your heartstring, and it's always good. It's what we call on TV putting a face on the story. So what is it? Is it lack of staff? Is it more people asking for services? You said right before the pandemic they were all caught up. Now there's 858 people on a waiting list. Yeah, it's staffing issues. Everyone from the providers to the advocates to state officials say we do not have enough staff. And they say they, they really probably didn't have enough staff before the pandemic, but they were managing. They probably needed more then, but then there was this huge drop in staffing levels and early intervention. And we have a chart, actually, if you go to uh, the story um, on globe.com slash Rhode Island, um, the huge drop in the staffing levels. And it has been going up slowly, but it's still not up to where it was pre-pandemic. And there's a lot of different factors for that. Obviously, pay. Um, we're talking about speech therapists, physical therapists. There's a huge demand for those types of clinicians in hospitals, in public schools. It's not just early intervention. And so they are being offered more money to
to work elsewhere than they would be paid in early intervention. So the providers like Meeting Street are saying we really need to be able to pay them more and pay them more to retain them, give them raises every year, not just a little tiny raise, but retention bonuses, things to actually keep these people here because we're competing with every other setting that needs a speech therapist, that needs a physical therapist, an occupational therapist. Yeah, I mean, these are the, this is the reality of kind of where we are in the world right now. Nobody likes to hear, oh, you need to spend more money, but very clearly, <laughs> if we want to have these early interventionists, we need to pay them more money. It's the only solution because they do have other options. It's a good market for them right now because they have lots of places that they can go and jump from, I think you reported this, stuff from you know fairly significant. You can get 25, 30, 40,000 more dollars if you go work at a hospital or things like that. Of course you're going to do that. We make, you know, in our careers, we'd make moves all the time for to make that much more money. So it makes complete sense. You've got to find ways to pay them more. I think the salient point, too, to Dan's point, is that I think it, it's helpful, you pointed out in your piece, that this is not just a temporary expenditure of additional funds. I mean, there is empirical data that shows over time money spent on early intervention, preschool services, all-day kindergarten, it, it pays off in the long run because it reduces all of these costs that you're going to otherwise deal with down the road, whether, you know, unfortunately, whether it's juvenile issues, um, population at the ACI, different things that were mentioned in your piece. So there's, there's a benefit to investing the money now, and I think that's why, why the, the speaker and others are so ingrained in trying to get that done. I interviewed John Kelly for a Rhode Island Spotlight piece that I did. I profiled <clears throat> Meeting Street last uh, fall, and I heard some of those same, he, he beats that drum, and I think it's a good one to say what we invest now for the long run is going to save us money. But when you're trying to balance the budget at a place like Meeting Street or other places, th those dividends don't pay off until five or ten years down the line. If he's raising all those salaries, then that that's not going away. His budget's going to be that much more. And isn't that the challenge? If you're paying more people, you've got to raise more money to balance your budget. Right, exactly. And his argument is that this program should be fully funded. They shouldn't be, because, you know, Meeting Street has a big telethon every year. They raise like a million dollars. He thinks that they shouldn't have to be backfilling the um, money that the state and federal government aren't reimbursing for this program because it's a mandate. It's a federal mandate. Everyone agrees that it's so important. Why isn't it being fully funded? And I will say the state, um, under Governor McKee and under Governor Raimondo, gave COVID relief funds to these early intervention providers, which they say was helpful. But that's a one-time thing. The final payment's being made later this year. So they say they really need a sustained, um, you know, maybe cost of living increase continuing so they can be able to continue to pay people more each year. The other story, uh, one of the other stories we saw, Kathy Gregg reported on a legislative oversight committee that said the Department of uh, Human Services <laughs> is running a $16.9 million surplus, but that wait times are almost an hour for key, uh, people to get key social services. So it goes back to the, the, the employment. We can't match the jobs with the vacancies. And it's a rare thing in government to have that kind of surplus. But you would think it's so maddening for the people reading this story, Dan, that why why can't we get these positions filled if you have the money to do it? Yeah, and you're seeing some, you know, I think, is it uh, Representative Serpa who wants to, uh, you know, potentially end the civil service exam to try to potentially have more, you know, more people in the pipeline. But I think it does go back. This is, uh, it's, it's somewhat similar in some ways, is these holes... It, 
people are finding better jobs elsewhere, right? They are, they're, they're, they're able to get paid more money doing you know, work, whether it's in the private sector uh, or elsewhere. And so you have to make these jobs. Nobody likes to hear that you, you know, government needs to spend more money, but in some cases that is, that, that is true here. You have you know, this, this big surplus is simply because you have a lot of vacancies, right? It's not like everybody's just you know, putting money under their couch, right? It's, it's because they, don't, they can't pay people to, uh, they can't find enough people to work. That's the real challenge here. This kind of workforce issue that is kind of post-COVID in so many different sectors, um, it's just very real. I mean, it goes to uh, people, can, you know, you're making the decision between staying, going to work and being in, you know, having, paying for childcare, mm -hmm. things like that. You, there are all these decisions that are getting made. And when, when there's it's not a lot of money, it's not that attractive of a job. What about that civil service wiping that out? Is that, is that a slippery slope to go down, an example? Look, the problem is that, that it was put there to protect and preserve a certain status that you wanted people to be at in terms of qualifications. Minimum. I think, right, and I, I think there's, that it can be adjusted. Like anything else, it's been in place for a long time. And if you ask somebody why do you have that, the typical answer is, well, because we've always had it, right? <laughs> which is never really a very good answer. Yeah. So I think that they're looking at that right now. I know Pat Serper is looking closely at that. Um, but the other issue is, is Dan is right, and we saw a little bit of it in, in Steph's piece, is that the competition it, it has changed. I'm not sure it's 100% COVID, but things have changed dramatically. I do a lot of work at the family court, as you know. And let me tell you, it's not just early intervention. You've got young children, adolescents, seven, eight-year-old kids that are in desperate need of therapists. And good luck. You know, uh, you know, you you can you can wait six months to try to get you know a child in to see a therapist who's got critical needs, by the way, not not just for a hey how you doing kind of meeting. Um, so um, childcare, you got people that are that are saying I'm leaving my job because by the time I pay childcare, if I can find childcare, right. by the way. I'm not making any money. What's the sense? I might as well stay home. So there's a lot of you know, issues, I think, that, that sort of, you know, residual damage done and overlap with the early intervention and other things that it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to solve. And, you know, guess who's the most likely to leave the <coughs> workforce because of the cost of child care? Women. Right. And guess who is the predominant gender in early childhood education mm -hmm. is women. So it's it's hard to find people if they're not in the workforce. And the other thing is, especially with the therapists, I know during um, COVID they relax. You could you couldn't go over state lines. So if you had a if you were a therapist in Providence and you had somebody in Seekonk, they relaxed that during the pandemic, but then they tightened it up. And I hear that they may be reconsidering that again to come in line with let's make it easier to try to hook up the therapist. And I understand you want to be in person, but if that's all you can get, Let's let's adapt a little bit, right? I think they're finding that there were things, very few, but there were some positive things that came out of the pandemic. And one of them is this this online or yeah. remote telehealth. Uh, access, telehealth to doctors, psychiatrists, counselors. And people said, well, that'll end as soon as, you know, COVID gets rolled back. And it really hasn't. It's It's been reduced. Um, and there's a constant battle between health insurers, companies, and and people at the providers in terms of how that should be funded, but there's no question that it's helped people with access to services that they would not otherwise have. And a lot of, by, a lot of it, by the way, is done on a national level because, you know, we get used to in Rhode Island, you know, you can drive just about anywhere, but this is an issue that affects people across the country. And you've got urban areas where, you know, people don't have access to a doctor, a counselor, a therapist, unless it's remotely by telehealth. So 
there have been some positives, uh, very few obviously, but, but it's gotten better and it's here to stay. There's nobody that I hear of now saying, let's go back to the way we were pre-COVID and get rid of telehealth. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, there. I was just moderated a panel on mental health access just a week or two ago, and uh, in, in the care in Rhode Island, and you talk to, you know, some of the specialists that focus on this stuff, and they they talk about yes, the telehealth is a huge, you know, a, a major major issue, and the other part is finding ways to make sure if you do need to get you know, a particularly young people to a uh, to an appointment. If you do need to do that, it, it, what we don't do a very good job of is sure in Providence you can find a provider. <laughs> it's much harder in the suburb, or, you know, in in Foster. And if you have to get, and then a you kid, have to take time out of work and all and, of that. Exactly, and and you know this is why I think unfortunately you are, as Steph pointed out, you're seeing a lot of mothers fall out of the workforce because they're you know more. It's it's cheaper to kind of stay home with your kid than it is to you know get them the the support that they need or get them into childcare. The other story about uh, government, <laughs> the trifecta of, uh, of not uh, living up to maybe where it should be is I did a story for the Hummel Report. It ran in Sunday's Providence Journal about uh, the state fleet trying to move towards zero emissions. That's electric, plug-in cars. Governor Raimondo signed an executive order back in 2015 that said we should be at 25% by 2025. They're only at 9.4%, so they got a ways to go. Governor McKee has kind of moved that back a little bit to 2030. Billy, I think the larger issue here, though, is you know a lot of people say, oh, I kind of want to go to electric cars. Cost, supply, and probably infrastructure, right? Where are you going to charge these? Right. I, th I think that's all part of it, and people are still not sold on it until they see it's, it's a chicken and the egg issue, I guess, you know, until they see the cost come down, the availability of charging, home charges, and all that be addressed, people are hesitant, I think, to jump in feet first. So I, mean, I think we're moving in that direction. It may be slower than some people want, including some people in my party that would like to see us move a lot more aggressively. But I, th I think the process is getting there. But I think People, generally speaking, are not completely on board with it yet for those reasons, I think. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to some setting some of these ambitious goals, that which, which completely makes sense. It's not like Rhode Island is unique when, when it comes to, you know, the carbon goals and things like that. But there's goals to set, and then there's what's realistic, and I think Rhode Island's running into this challenge right now. And in the Raimondo administration, they, they said it. She knew she wasn't going to be around in 10 years, as Governor McKee will not likely be active after 2030, even if he gets reelected again, but they didn't do anything the first three years. So like the early intervention, mm -hmm. that puts you in a hole because you can't make up that ground. Well, so, you know, I loved your story, Jim. And what I thought about it was I just, we constantly cover these big announcements. There's a hoopla. We're going to, we're going to do this great thing by the year 2030, whatever the year is, after the person who makes the promise is not going to be in office anymore. Governor who? And so I just, I'm glad that you went back and you checked in on how that goal was going, and then you you found that whole situation where the governor's advance man traded in his hybrid vehicle for what was it? A Jeep Wagoneer V8, 17 miles to the gallon, so three a gas out of ten. On the, yeah, yeah, seventy six thousand dollars. That's Hummer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it is hard. I mean, I'm an apartment dweller, so I'd love to Where have an electric charge? car, but. You know, there's no charger. If I, I guess, if I could convince my landlord to get a charger, but then I'm just going to move to the next apartment. So it's, it's not a reliable. We're not. We don't have a reliable infrastructure yet for a lot of people to feel like they can buy 
electric cars, but the state can certainly get chargers and set them up and have state employees who drive vehicles. They've got them in the basement, they, yeah, the DOT, they have, DOA. Yeah, they have reliable, right the state can have reliable charging. You know, it's sure. funny, I've told this story. My son, um, we gave him my wife's 2013 Camry when he started grad school four years ago. He needed reliable uh, transportation. He was going to register it in North Carolina to get residency. And he said to me a couple of years ago, he said, you know, Toyotas will last forever, so he could have this car another 10 years. But he said, I wonder if this is the last gasoline-powered vehicle that I'm going to buy. And so who knows where we're going to be five or 10 years from now, but he's thinking about that already in a way that, have you thought at all about electric or, or hybrid? Yeah, because I'm reminded of it at home. I, I bought a car <laughs> not too long ago and it's not an electric car. And you I hear thought it I every was going to get, from my grandson and my daughter, I thought I was going to get crucified. <laughs> they were going to like flatten the tires. So yeah. I'm you go out in your own driveway the, and it's slashed. The Rolls Royce isn't yet electric. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very aware of it. I think, I think generally speaking, people are aware of it. I just think there's some residual reticence to moving forward with some people because they don't see it quite widely accepted and widely available yet. And I think there's, and by the way, there's a human part of it that, you know, we've always had gas vehicles. There's gas stations everywhere. You can pull in and in five minutes, you're, you're back on the road. And I don't think, generally speaking, people are sold on that as being the case with electric cars yet. Do you yeah. think, Bill, that the state should be taking a heavier hand in mandating chargers for businesses or commercial buildings, or do you think that's crossing a line? Yeah, I think that's the balancing test you always see with the state and with businesses, and I think the state typically would say more. They'd like to see more more direction from the federal government because it's a federal issue, and of course there's nothing coming out of the Congress right now with, with how separate and apart the two parties are down there, so I think there's a bit of a logjam that's been created by that. I think that's that probably you know, contributes to some of it. It's also the pressure that gets put. I've always watched this, particularly on, on issues like this, like environmental issues. The pressure that gets put on places like Rhode Island from the big states, right? You got you have to follow suit when California decides to take action, or quite frankly, our neighbors to the north in Massachusetts. But but California is always a, a big one. It puts a lot of pressure those on us Ramundo, to get it done. Those Ramundo goals were based on California, or California goals. That's yeah, right. either yeah. way. Uh, let's do this. Let's do uh, outrages and or kudos. And there's one other thing I want to get to. Bill, what do you have this week? I hate to do it, but it's got to be Donald Trump, and I try to do anything else except him because it could always be an outrage with Donald Trump. But when he talks about General Milley, who's a lifetime military guy, I couldn't tell you what party General Milley is from if he even has a political preference, but the guy has been wounded in action, served his whole life in the military protecting the country. He makes two innocuous phone calls to China, both of which were approved by our national security uh, people. And the president is unhappy with him for God only knows why. And publicly, Donald Trump goes out and says that he created, he, he committed treason and he should be executed. That's I rich mean, coming from Trump, huh? It's just unbelievable. But, but I think it also shows his complete ignorance of this, the, the issue that there are people out there who believe and buy into whatever he says. And in this environment, to call for someone to be executed is just, I mean, it's unforgivable. I, I don't understand it. And I'm sure General Milley is a military guy, but he's got a family. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just, I just don't get it. And I don't know how anybody 
of either party can find that kind of behavior acceptable. Dan, what do you have? My outreach is the uh, debate, which shouldn't be a debate at all, over the future of Mount Pleasant High School in Providence. There's a chance to build a brand new school for the first time in Providence in more than 15, 20 years, going back to David Cicilline when he was mayor. Uh, and you're getting some opposition from preservationists who would never send their children to a school like Mount Pleasant. Uh, you're getting some opposition from some state lawmakers who, um, who quite frankly, just want to fight over what the future of public education looks like. But you look at the kids in those school in that school, zero percent proficiency in mm. math. Zero percent. Not one kid. Not the valedictorian is proficient in math at that school. Buildings falling apart. I live in a neighborhood. Literally, there are bricks that fall down. They they have fenced off the school to try to get it to, to, to try to make it safer. And you have this chance to build a school. Uh, it should happen, it should have happened yesterday. And, and hopefully, mm -hmm. and to the credit of Governor uh, McKee, he's kind of pushing for this. And so hopefully it will happen and there won't see, you won't see so much obstruction going forward. Yeah, the kids deserve that. Steph, what do you have? You know, I think the reticent of state officials to speak to reporters about big issues that they're responsible for, like the early intervention program. You couldn't get somebody on camera. Nope or even off camera. And so I, I think that continues to be a problem. It's a disservice to the public when you run a program or you're responsible for something, especially young children, and, and you won't talk about it, and you're hiding behind a spokesperson. That's a huge problem. And some of the spokespeople are making north of six figures. So you know, if for you're a spokesperson or a communications yeah. person, communicate. Um, we have just a couple minutes left. Dan, you've been uh, following the uh, payment lieu of taxes. Providence uh, uh, Mayor Smiley, who I had interviewed for a weekly piece months ago, talked about he's been working on getting um, the four colleges on board, lifespan, not so much. So now this is running into a little resistance at City Hall. This is timely this week. So bring us up to speed. And this is, the, this is their contribution to the budget. A little bit more than what they've been doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a, as Steph has reported, it's, you know, more than $200 million over the course of 20 years from these four colleges. There's a separate deal with Brown that, that that's, you know, we're talking a substantial amount of money. Uh, and I think we all pro kind of thought initially that this was going to be kind of sail through. You had the mayor on board with the city council president. Usually the mayor and the city council president, if they're on the same page. And they had the money earmarked for where do they oh, want they, to spend they really, it, right? They as soon as this do. goes through, the checks fly. Oh, yeah, they actually have a hiring freeze waiting for waiting this money for to go That's right. That's right. And, uh, and now, you, you know, you are getting some resistance. That Providence City Council is extremely progressive. And so, the, you know, you are getting some pushback about what, uh, you know, th these, these colleges should pay more. The challenge is, is that there, you know, there's always the chance the colleges just walk away and kind of thumb their they nose. They can tell you to go pound Because they don't have to do this. It's just public pressure. Yeah, I was at the public hearing the other night, and a lot of people, including Brown University students, were saying this is unacceptable. They should be paying more. And this new city council, you know, a lot of them are, would agree with that point. And so there's no guarantee that it has the votes to pass. I think the council president is cautiously optimistic that it's going to pass um, potentially as soon as next week. But by the time this program airs, we will know if it came out of the council finance committee um, which is also not guaranteed to pass the deal. So. There were also, there was the initial one and then a, a separate thing with Brown. Now, could it be bifurcated or do you think they're going to consider it all together? So it could be bifurcated. I think they're going to, I mean, they're going to vote on them separately, to be clear, but I think they're still going to do it on the same day um, because it, 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 the whole thing could fall apart if 
they pass one deal but not the separate Brown deal because it was really all negotiated together even though Brown has sort of its separate deal where they get, they get, they're going to get some city streets and some, some different things from the city. What do you think? You know, the pilot program, which is, you know, payment in lieu of taxes, it's been around, this has been a debate that's been going on for decades, yeah. decades, and it's gotten a lot more publicity lately because, you know, financial times have changed. Mm -hmm. And it's always a, a sort of a, a, a tug of war. You know, you've got council members who think, you know, this is good that you got them to this point, but we want that plus more, you know, and, and they want to have a say in it. And it's typically something that's negotiated by the administration. I think they'll get to a point where they, they have something that they can live with. Um, but it's, it's, it's been something that's been going on for a long time that's been threatened, lawsuits, you know, that are going to be filed, you know, if an agreement isn't reached. But they've been able to reach an agreement for Last years. Last 15 seconds. You know, what's funny, funny is that this has been going on forever. Back 1990, the Democratic nominee for mayor, Andrew Ronaldo, says, tax brown, tax brown. Providence Journal editorial board, don't do it. They were on Brown's side at the time. Things have evolved a lot. Yeah. Okay, folks, that is all the time we have. Bill, good to see you again, and Steph and Dan. Folks, we appreciate your loyalty to this show. We're here every week for you. Please come back next week as a lively experiment continues. We hope you have a great weekend. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.